Yeah, here we go. All right, cool. Um, so one of the hard parts about HPC is that um, it's complex. So um, there's lots of different ways to characterize HPC. Uh, there's people who are chiefly concerned about just I.O. There's people um, in that category, we'll call them like the National Labs customers, for example. Um, Genomics cares a lot about I.O. over other elements, right? We'll talk about those other elements as well. Um, there's the analytics guys, uh, you know, AI and ML uh, type, uh, type workloads. Um, there's the EDA space. Uh, so um, traditionally that's been, you know, a lot of these are you know, small file workloads. Um, and then there's the people who care chiefly about cost. And that's a lot of times research groups because they're working with grant money. Um, and maybe they don't have a bottomless pit of money like federal labs do. Um, utilities are often worried about margin. Um, there's usually fairly low tolerances for having, having high margin in the work that they're doing inside those projects. Um, the media and entertainment space cares about cost because they have a business to run. They can't, you know, it's not just a science project for them. Um, and then there's people who are chiefly concerned with the time to results. Um, finance is one of those. They have opportunities that they have to take advantage of. And when that window is gone, um, you know, uh, it won't matter anymore whether or not they get the results late. Um, Different kinds of workloads inside of those that you can associate with things. You can associate, uh, you know, technologies like Lustre and MPI-IO and, and NFS with uh, a lot of the I/O-oriented uh, workloads. Um, we see a lot of HDFS in the uh, in the finance world and um, uh, EDA world uh, for for I would say, um, you know, more recently. Uh, you know, traditionally that's been an NFS place. Um, and then we see a lot of things like GPFS um, in, in all over the place, uh, as, well, as well as NFS. And the reason um, that, that uh, HPC is difficult to, to sort of nail down is because everybody has a slightly different uh, idea about what HPC means to them. And when you go talk with customers, um, just to show a hands out of curiosity, who's a, who's a partner and who's a customer? It's like half and half. Okay, cool. So this year we have a open, it's an open forum. So it used to be that GPS talks were limited to people on the partner track. And so you never know. So I want to make sure I'm, I'm giving you guys information that's useful to you. Um, so it's hard to nail this down. Every customer has a different uh, sense of what HPC means to them. Um, and that's consistent with, you know, other kinds of storage workloads too, but especially so in HPC. You get a lot of legacy applications with weird IO patterns and a lot of really interesting problems because they're solving interesting challenges. Um, and uh, they often have to create uh, new things in order to do that. Um, so we see uh, computer-aided engineering in uh, CAE um, also in here. Um, it's, uh, it's just, it's all over the map. Um, and it's, it's interesting, actually, because when you look at, like, the greenfield opportunities versus sort of the sunsetting data center world, um, the HPC market uh, is one of the areas of growth. Um, the cloud and HPC are the sort of two areas that are growing in storage according to the, um, uh, you know, the various uh, IDC and Gartner groups and those kinds of things. So um, when people go to the cloud, especially with HPC, it always starts off like this. I'm going to roll my own. I'm going to do it myself. And this works fine for like a day and a half. And then it starts to go and grow in scope. Uh, and pretty soon they are occupying multiple AZs and they have to worry about all kinds of other uh, challenges now associated with scale out and data synchronization. And uh, pretty soon they have clients that aren't just talking to the servers in their AZs, but they're talking to other AZ systems too. Um, and EFS helps to simplify that. EFS says, you know what, we're going to back that off. We're going to give you one mount target. We're going to have a single namespace. And we're going to do it through effectively through a load balancer. And so EFS is great for that. And if you have a ton of data, EFS is your best friend. You can get amazing performance off of EFS. But for a big portion of the HPC market, um, you have a lot of people who, who have not that much data, frankly, or they have lots of small files, or they're write heavy, um, write latency in EFS because <clears throat> the desire to do durable writes um, uh, is uh, uh, slow, frankly. So, you know, if you have uh, small file workloads and you're write heavy, EFS uh, usually isn't, isn't what you're going to go after. You're going to look for something else. But it works well for customers because it helps simplify things. Um, and it helps simplify things so much so that a lot of people will use it because it's just, you know, there's no infrastructure to manage. <coughs> Excuse me. There's no infrastructure to manage. Um, and uh, that simplification is a trade-off that people are consciously making. But there's other ways to do it. 
since this is a partner track, we're going to feature some partner technology. Um, but first, I want to talk about um, HPC cluster node anatomy. So um, I, there's these concepts of um, you know, what should a node look like and what are the parts that are important. Um, there's different ways of doing deployments. Um, if you deploy the same way today that you've deployed for the last 15 years, um, you'll probably have um, a mixture of applications and storage resources on the, on the same systems. Um, there's good arguments for that on-prem. Uh, in the cloud, it doesn't really matter as much. Uh, you can disaggregate things, but what, what is consistent is that when you start looking at the node anatomy, the things that uh, you lose a little bit of efficiency on, uh, on an individual node will deliver a huge loss of efficiency at scale. So it's important to understand what's going on at the data layer, where uh, are your bottlenecks and how to test for them, What's going on at the metadata layer? What's, you know, where are the bottlenecks and how to test for that? We'll talk about that. Um, if you should tier, I would say um, most people should tier. There's not a lot of reason for folks necessarily to not tier, unless you know that your data set's changing very quickly and uh, you, um, you want 100% of it hot. And we'll talk about some, some of the trade-offs there as well. Um, routing uh, between cluster nodes goes to your availability metric. So whatever you think your cluster can provide for you um, from an availability perspective, um, the ability for you to, regardless of what kind of job schedule you're using, um, if you think that those requests are being able to be handled all the time, uh, you may be mistaken uh, if you ask the question, what happens when a node dies and I have something that's in flight? If the answer is you have to wait a, a huge amount of time for something to time out, that's going to negatively impact your, uh, your availability. Um, so understanding how requests get routed inside of the cluster is super important. Uh, and then on the front end, the access protocols really kind of go toward um, how much administrative headache you're going to have. One of the reasons that people really liked uh, this sort of hyper-converged element is that it was easier from an administrative perspective to kind of deploy everything um, all in the same box everywhere. Um, but in the cloud, um, all of the other arguments that are for hyper-converged kind of fall over. You know, you don't, you don't have to um, worry about deploying one-size-fits-all because you can tune the instance types that we, and there's so many instance types these days, um, you can tune the instance types to whatever it is uh, that you need. Uh, and then uh, the other argument from a sales perspective is, oh, it just, you know, it, it's easier to sell, uh, you know, these building blocks. Well, with AWS, with the utility-based uh, pricing model, you only pay for what you're using anyway. Um, so that argument sort of falls down. And then from an application development perspective, the idea that um, you would have uh, the same resources everywhere, well, you get that anyway when you start using APIs and you start to move your workload to be a little bit more cloud-friendly. Um, so access protocol is super important. So um, I guess I'll back up for just a second um, to, to talk, talk one, more, one more bit about this. Um, so when you, when you find waste uh, in, in small amounts um, and you look at, okay, well, it's not a big deal if I have a, you know, a half a percent you know, inefficiency or something on a node, um, and you start looking at deploying uh, tens of thousands of those things as um, a lot of HPC customers do, um, that, start, that starts to add up. So what you get out of each instance should be um, as close to what the hardware is physically possible delivering um, as possible. Um, there's um, great tools for testing things. Uh, there's um, myths around uh, you know, which tools are better for what things. I'll talk about some of the tools that um, our HPC SMEs uh, advocate using. Um, uh, specifically, uh, testing like the metadata layer, uh, you would use a different tool, for example, um, than what you would do if you were gonna test uh, the data layer. Um, the way you organize your server nodes versus your client nodes doesn't much matter. Um, most of the job schedulers that have been around forever um, or you can work with uh, in the cloud too. So um, uh, I would say probably the most common one that I see from the university space is uh, Slurm. Any Slurm users in the? Yeah, okay, all right, good. Yeah, so um, Slurm works great uh, in AWS. There's no reason not to use it, um, especially if you've already got everything configured the way you want it to be. Um, works pretty well with CFT too, the CloudFormation template service. 
Um, so if we just characterize sort of our approach that what we're trying to do is eliminate hotspots or at least discover them, um, we can set up what it is that we want to test for. Now, um, a, a lot of folks actually say, uh, inside of our org anyway, um, you know, benchmarks are useless, give us real workloads. Like, like if, you, you know, if, if you're going to go through all the trouble to do a benchmark, you might as well go through all the trouble to actually do the real thing. Um, and there's, there's a lot of merit to that. Um, but because in the HPC world everything is um, uh, sort of all over the place as far as what constitutes HPC, uh, it's difficult to come up with uh, one workload that would work well for everybody. So we're going to do a little bit of benchmarking. Um, I'm going to focus primarily on, on one partner product today. Um, I'm going to compare it against some other things. So Luster is probably the, you know, the gold standard that everybody thinks about when they think storage and HPC. Maybe GPFS is in there too. Um, it's very common for people to hang you know, um, NFS clients or Samba clients um, off of these things in order to support uh, things like uh, you know, Windows, Windows and that sort of thing. Um, in the M&E space, uh, there's a ton of Windows clients. Excuse me. Um, the deadline scheduler by Thinkbox, which is one of Amazon's acquisitions, actually a great example. Um, they're all, all Windows users, and so they, they're hurting for great HPC storage solutions. Um, so uh, without naming names, um, uh, we'll talk about some customers. So um, a semiconductor customer um, ran uh, a really interesting uh, workload, actually. They, they, they had sort of they had um, two challenges. One challenge was uh, and they were sort of juxtaposed, 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 the juxtaposition <laughs> of, the two, of the two challenges um, was that uh, they wanted great performance, but they also needed centralized manageability. Um, and so um, they ran their, uh, their builds against a local SSD on a super high-end uh, you know, EDA workstation, and they got um, great performance. Um, you know, uh, this is um, minutes for, for an elapsed, elapsed time for a build. Um, and then they ran it um, on just an, a standard NFS v4 open source product, and uh, the results were not so good. Um, and then they used um, an AWS uh, technology partner product called Weka, and the results were almost as good as local SSD. The catch is, is that Weka is a distributed parallel file system. So all of the things that people think about from an IT perspective of, oh, rogue SS, you know, rogue workloads on, on you know, non-centralized data, um, those challenges got solved um, by using Weka. The data was centralized and manageable. Um, and uh, the performance requirements that the engineering groups had so that they could actually get you know, more than one build done in a day <laughs> was, um, were, were met as well. Um, and so that's, that was actually, that was really interesting. So there's, the solution was uh, to implement Weka, and it, was, it wasn't even a very, very big cluster, actually. Um, but the, the performance was on par with the local SSD. Um, the next customer is a genomics customer, and it was a similar kind of workload, where it was a, a, a small file workload, but they had some large files in the mix. And so mixed workloads are particularly difficult for most storage systems to, uh, to handle well. Um, a lot of it just has to do with sort of a queuing architecture. Um, so it's, you know, if you've ever had a small file workload that's humming along and then something oriented on big file I.O. comes along and just throws it out of whack, um, or vice versa, a lot of big streaming workloads, and then uh, another client comes over and does a bunch of small I.O., and your performance goes in the toilet. Um, that, doesn't, that is not limited to the HPC world. That is a problem that uh, database administrators around the world suffer from as well. Pretty much anybody who has performance requirements has hit that kind of problem. Um, and so um, handling a mixed file workload is, uh, is a particularly difficult challenge. And in, in this case, um, they, uh, they bought some equipment. This is the, I mean, this, was, this was, uh, started out as an on-prem uh, you know, test. They bought some equipment. And, and um, their incumbent vendor um, uh, said, well, you know, what are you going to go use this stuff for? And they, they told them. And, and so the, uh, the vendor, in addition to giving them the, that, that hardware for doing the testing, sent some nice all-flash arrays with it for free. Uh, just, you know, so they wouldn't have to do the test. And I think that that's funny because um, even uh, when you look at the results, um, the results were that a single run of the, of the genomics workload, which was a, a format conversion job, um, ran really fast on the all-flash array. It did really, really well. But when you started having concurrent jobs, that mixed file workload problem uh, starts to show up. And it starts to elongate the elapsed time uh, for the, uh, the on-prem all-flash array 
doing, doing its tests. So again, um, Weka uh, worked really well there because um, they have a good software architecture under the covers that lets them handle um, different, uh, different types of workload. Um, the, you know, a, one conversion uh, completed in the same amount of time as six conversions, which you know, if you think about it from an HPC perspective, you think, okay, that means that the limits of the, of the, of what, of the gear that was deployed weren't found yet. So um, a lot of this has to do with just old software versus new software in some ways. Um, there's also who's doing it, like who's writing it. Um, most software, like the most software that we deal with on a daily basis, including the stuff on our telephones and on our laptops, is old, like really old. So you know, Sun RPC goes back a bit. Um, standard libraries are, at, you know, the basic system calls in Unix haven't been updated in a long time. Um, there's new, there's more system calls now than there were, uh, you know, uh, 30 years ago. But a lot of this stuff is getting a little long in the tooth. So. Um, the assumptions are actually different now, the, the, the things that people think about. It used to be that people just sort of, you know, they, they put a lot of money into hardware engineering, hardware engineering, and, and the hardware engineering um, mantra sort of was, we'll make it reliable, and then the software didn't have to work as much. And now we know that when you deploy in large quantities, especially for HPC use cases, um, where, where you're using uh, Lots of systems, maybe uh, as your clients, and maybe not as many systems as your servers. Um, we know that the hardware really isn't that reliable. Um, another thing was that the operating system was considered the sort of the, rock, the, the bedrock of stability. People would deploy operating systems depending on the reputation for stability. Um, I remember deploying like OSF1 on Alpha, and it was rock solid, man. It was like out of the box, no bugs. I loved it. Um, there was a great series called the, uh, the Unix Haters Handbook where they talked about symbolic systems versus sun systems in the early days. And they were like, the good thing about suns is that they boot fast. And that's good because they boot a lot. Like they, they weren't very stable. Um, and so now we know um, that that isn't always the right choice, that the way that um, uh, things like Linux are developed and even FreeBSD to, to some extent, um, you know, fr frankly speaking, there's a, there's a lot in there and it's moving so fast that sometimes trusting the kernel isn't the right choice. And so we have mechanisms now to bypass those things. Things like DPDK um, and SPDK, these are um, development kits uh, that Intel puts out around how to, literally how to bypass the kernel. Um, things like um, uh, Rocky help lower latency, uh, that's an on-prem, um, RDMA over converged Ethernet, it's an on-prem uh, technology that doesn't exist in the cloud, but you can get the same latency levels um, in the cloud using things like DPDK um, as you can on-prem using things like Rocky. Um, we used to believe that MTBF was millions of hours because manufacturers told us that, and then we got uh, bent out of shape when we only got a few hundred thousand hours out of something, and we thought, oh, it must be a fluke. Now we see enough hardware that we know that um, it's totally normal for a drive to die or a system to die after 200,000 hours. Um, you know, it doesn't mean that it's dead forever, it just means it needs, it's sick and it needs help. Um, it used to be that you would lease hardware and you'd leave it up until it was time to return it or until it died if you did like a $1 buyout or something like that. Um, HPC customers, especially in the cloud, especially in AWS, use EC2 spot a lot. Um, so much so that like, um, you know, you might have a job that uses 100,000 cores, but you might only spend a couple thousand dollars. Um, and that's one of the great things about EC2 Spot, you know, these phenomenal stories about the, the kid who got the National Science Foundation grant and, and ha came up with a new way to, um, to identify a certain type of uh, uh, skin cancer cell. Um, and he needed a lot of cores to do it, though. So he, he used EC2 Spot to exercise several hundred thousand cores. And uh, he was able to complete in the weekend what the National Science Foundation said they would have to spend like $38 million building a lab to do. Um, and there was no CapEx component. So, um, so with EC2 Spot, software needs to have different expectations around how long the hardware is going to be up. Um, and if you're uh, not using EC2 Spot, you should ask the question, why not? Give you a 90% savings um, on average. It's, sometimes it's even more. Um, over what you can uh, buy using reserved instances or even using hardware on-prem. Really no reason not to use it. It's really quite cool. So, um, uh, so those are the assumptions. Um, now, uh, it's, in, it's really likely that when you start looking at your HPC jobs, 
um, that you uh, have a job scheduler that's resilient and that you don't care if some nodes die. And that's cool, um, but you should probably know anyway what it is that you're deploying. So um, Lustre, for example, after all these years, no real good durability options. There's a few patches here and there. Um, but at the end of the day, uh, what makes something durable? That's a question, right? How do you measure it? Um, and the, the answer is uh, that you need to have special logic in order to handle the failures that you're going to see. Um, and so when you look at um, availability versus durability, it's important to separate them. A lot of people conflate them, and they'll call it resiliency um, or reliability, um, and they really mean two separate things. So, um, so availability is, uh, you know, you sent your request, and it was received successfully. And if it was received successfully, it was available. Durability means that you wrote some data, and then sometime later you came back, and it was there or it wasn't there. It's lost or it's, it's present. So um, durability means that you wrote the data and it wasn't lost. So um, at the bottom line, that's 11 nines. That's S3's durability. So what that means is that um, there's a 1 in 100 billion chance that it will lose data. And um, we explain this in the, in the S3 fact, like how, how we go about calculating that. Um, but S3 actually beat these numbers because it has trillions of objects. It's never lost uh, an object um, inadvertently. People have deleted objects, of course, um, but the, uh, uh, the support tickets associated with restoring those objects usually have happy endings if people had version, uh, versioning turned on. Um, availability is, um, in the context of AWS services, um, how often you get a uh, positive response. So it's entirely possible, for example, that you might submit an HTTP request um, over one of our RESTful APIs, and you might get a response that says, I'm busy, try again later. That is uh, tantamount to it not being available. But then you may resubmit your request, uh, and on the next try, uh, it could say, okay, here you go. Uh, here's, here's the response that you were looking for. So that part's important because um, the protocol that you use can dictate what the semantics are, and if you're using something like RPC, it's not so simple because you may simply wait for the I.O. to come back. Availability may mean that your application is hung, and that's the downside to having old software that expects things like POSIX compliancy. So, so a, um, a note about that, actually. Um, uh, anybody have, like, POSIX requirements in the workloads that they're working, running on? Like, anybody does, like... And like directory locking or atomic rights or anything like that. Yeah, so um, in the HPC world, um, traditionally requirements are strict um, and the tools that you're using are fairly strict. And it, it, it's, it's often the case that um, uh, things like NFS don't work. Sometimes they do. There are definitely um, plenty of scenarios where NFS works fine. Um, but there's also this section of HPC where um, they need more POSIX compliancy than NFS can provide. And it's just, it really comes down to the fact that NFS wasn't really built to do um, all the things that a, a quote-unquote real file system were, were built to do. So um, we'll talk about failures, and then we'll, uh, we'll go into a demo. Um, so uh, why does it matter what you use? Like, why can't you just go use Lustre? Oh, you can totally go use Lustre. Lustre doesn't offer you any durability, but it can live on top of things that do. Um, but uh, if you had something that did offer durability, um, maybe uh, you had some sort of thing on-prem, for example, that uh, uh, might protect your data for you, um, it could be the case that uh, every 22 years something might die. But when you start having lots of those things, the probability adds up, and it's entirely likely that you're going to experience a failure sooner than that. So a failure every 22 years, when you have one of something, translates to a failure every 1.9 years when you have 12 of them. And that number continues to get smaller and smaller and smaller when you have more and more and more. So if you have 100 or 200 or 300, you can expect to have failures. If you have 300, you can expect to have failures every month. Right? If you have uh, 600, you can expect to have failures a lot sooner than that. Right? So um, when you think about the size of your HPC clusters, um, Think about that. Like, what is the what is your what is your rate of failure been on prem, and is it going to? And it'll probably get worse, frankly, when you um, when you start 
uh, using things like EC2 spot because if you put in a bid for something and you lose your bid, that's the equivalent of a failed node because the, the node gets taken away from you. So understanding how these elements impact the software that you're using is super important. So um, if it takes you eight and a half hours to repair uh, that problem that you had, maybe you have some sort of RAID system or some sort of erasure coding, um, what that means is that for the duration of that, I'll just put these build outs up there. For the duration of that, uh, that rebuild, you are, um, you're having a different kind of risk. The way you characterize risk is different. Anybody ever had a two disks fail at the same time? I have, okay. So statistically, it's really improbable, but that doesn't mean it doesn't happen. So these statistics are sort of like guidelines that you can use to help yourself. Um, but really what it boils down to is you have to ask the question, can I afford to not have something durable? So a lot of people say, oh, I'll just, uh, if it's an HPC job, I'll just rerun the job if I have a failure. Um, and this is what a lot of people do with, um, with things like uh, Lustre. If they, are, they want really good performance, they go and deploy on instance stores rather than EBS. And then um, when they have an instance store failure or a node failure, they have to start all over. That means they have to build out their entire environment again. It's not fun. So, um, so thinking uh, about that is uh, super important. So that's actually one of the reasons why I like Weka, because um, it uses the instance store, but it has a durability mechanism that gives you the 11 nines of durability that you get from S3. It also supports tiering to S3, and, and, and we'll, we'll actually talk about um, how that works functionally. Um, from a, a performance perspective, um, MD test is sort of the de facto test for metadata performance studies, and it's used in a lot of um, really large system RFPs. Um, so file creation rate is one of the, I would say, one of the most important um, HPC application issues, right? It often is the case that um, a large volume of files are created um, not only at the beginning uh, in order to read, like, input, data sets for maybe some data decomposition um, among like parallel processes, um, but also at intervals uh, throughout the course of, of application runs. And a lot of that has to do with the fact that most applications in the HPC space have some form of checkpointing system um, where they write out intermediate data sets. And if there's a problem uh, with, the out, with the software, they can restart from their checkpoint. That's an, usually an internal uh, component to the HPC app. Um, it is also the case that um, usually those checkpoints are written out to the same storage system that they're using to do everything else. So there's some pretty big assumptions there about durability. Um, so the metadata operations are, are a critical function of distributed file systems. And I would say uh, more often than not, it ends up being a, a pretty major bottleneck um, to uh, system scalability. And that's just sort of by nature of, of how client requests are serviced. Um, and typical metadata operations involve gathering uh, file system or file attributes from um, many, many systems, uh, or possibly even from, um, in some architectures, a single metadata server. Um, and unfortunately, you know, neither of those things uh, bode well for, for scalability. If you're getting from a single system and every client's waiting on it, that's not good. Um, examples of these kinds of operations are uh, file or directory creation um, and removal, for that matter. Um, stat operations in order to get things like sizes and A times and M times um, permissions and those sorts of things. So um, you can see there that um, I've got a slurm. Um, you see my S run command and I'm using MD test against uh, my test directory. Um, so this, uh, this graph compares uh, Weka against Lustre. Um, and the reason that it compares those two and not um, something else is because both of them present a fully POSIX compliant implementation. You could do it, I suppose, also with something like GPFS. Um, with the data path limits, things are a little different. So, um, and I have a, a, a problem with the Lustre run here, actually, at, um, in the 1024 column. But um, it's important to understand the I.O. data path performance of your HPC platform, because um, usually HPC I.O. workloads adopt one of two I.O. modes, um, a file per process model, uh, where each process of a parallel application writes to and reads from its own file, uh, or a shared file model um, where a large set of parallel processes perform collective I.O. to a single file at non-overlapping offsets. Um, the scalability of um, the uh, shared file workload, um, since it involves uh, locking usually, um, is uh, super important. 
Uh, so it's often limited in distributed file systems. Um, and this is true, by the way, not just for POSIX I.O., but also for other kinds of I.O. that are maybe more aligned and more structured, um, like MPI.io or HDF5 libraries. And so for this exercise, the plan was to use um, the IOR benchmark, IOR, um, to study low-level sequential and random I.O. performance characteristics of the file systems. Um, this was done on AWS instances, um, and we used um, the uh, Max I.O. Um, I.O. proxy application to study the um, uh, represented application-level performance. Um, so um, the nice thing was um, we gathered a lot of data, um, and we were able to see uh, the sort of expected linear scalability um, up to the point where we uh, hit the limits of the hardware that we were running on. Got to hit the right button. Um, you can do uh, other types of things too. Um, so you know you can do um, uh, by giving different options to, to I or it'll test different elements of POSIX. There's really just a question of you know how complete is your application require POSIX compliancy, and if it requires you know 100% compliance. Um, then you know, things like NFS aren't gonna work for you. And so um, you, may, you may think, well, I, I'd love to take my HPC workload to the cloud, but I don't necessarily um, have the option of going to something like EFS, so what should I do? Uh, so what you should do is, um, I'll go back and we'll go here. What you should do is you should go here to, uh, okay. Here we go. You should go here, start.weka.io. You can, you can do it today. You don't, you don't have to, um, uh, you know, it's not like a special uh, Amazon-only thing. Um, and so what this is is a uh, self-service portal that Weka put together, and it's got actually some really nice features. So on the left, um, it gives you sort of like what your price would be with on-demand pricing. If you have reserved instances, you can use that to do self-deploys as well. Um, you can specify what the capacity is, whether or not you want it to automatically um, tier to S3 or not. You can configure it after the, afterwards. Um, you can tell it whether or not you want a hyperconverged deployment, um, uh, which is uh, shared, um, or whether or not you want to do dedicated. Um, it'll turn on clients for you as well. Not huge numbers. Um, you can, like if you have a a CFT set up and Slurm or something like that, and you have thousands of clients that you're deploying, um, you know, you definitely probably still do that. Um, but for the, for the, for the server component, um, this was a, a, a nice self-service way of doing uh, CloudFormation uh, style uh, deployments. Um, you can take their uh, CFT and modify it. Um, the other thing that you can do is uh, you can, if you want to, you can do things like specify, you know, what performance levels you, you say you need. Um, and uh, they do really good guessing based on what kind of instance type you use about whether or not you can handle, um, like, the ENA, for example. If you have bursty network requirements, um, they, they'll do some calculations about uh, allowing you to use a newer instance type, for example, like, a, like a, an I-series or, or um, like the I-3, for example, has ENA. Um, and so the smaller ENA instances have, have bursty network uh, characteristics. Um, so when you're ready to go deploy, um, you tell it how many clients you want and what the type of the clients are, and you click deploy cluster, um, and it will use a feature in CloudFormation template to just bring up that, that stack. It'll ask you what you want to call the stack name, what your SSH key should be, what subnet you want to deploy, and what the VPC ID is. Um, you check the box at the bottom, and away you go. And so when that's done, it looks like this. And you get this one output. This one output is a ELB. And if we go back down here and we look at the events, is this big enough for you guys to see? Let me make this bigger. We go look at the events, at all the things that they've done for us. They set up the bright security groups. They set up um, placement groups. They set up log groups. They set up security groups. They set up the back-end systems. They set up the, the two clients that I asked them to, to set up. And then they set up a load balancer in front of the nodes for the administrative aspect. <clears throat> so all of those things were done. And then the, <clears throat> the clusterization of the, uh, of the nodes as well so that they form a cluster. Um, that was all done via a CloudFormation template. Um, I, I, for the purposes of this demo, I feel like live demos have more credibility. So I wiped out my demo environment and we're gonna do it together. 
So, um, so you can see here that um, from start to finish, uh, 2, uh, 2 p.m., uh, the CloudFormation template was done at, at uh, 2.13. Um, so it is quick, um, and you can actually set it up and you can experiment. So it's the best part. Okay, so um, when it's done, you click on that link, <clears throat> it takes you to um, their login page, and that takes you to this system overview. So this is a, a, a relatively small cluster. Um, it's just, uh, just six systems. Um, and uh, inside of their, their uh, GUI, which is all um, uh, client-side render oriented, um, there's a really great uh, event system, um, statistics, um, file systems, object store definition. So we're gonna do an object store definition together. So I have two, um, two clusters of systems. I have one cluster in uh, US East and I have another cluster in US West. So I've turned both of those up. So what we're gonna do is we're going to um, create, um, we're gonna configure the clusters to talk to S3. Um, we're gonna demonstrate that the file system is uh, a shared file system. We're gonna take a snapshot. We're gonna then upload the snapshot to S3 so that we, you know, like at the point that we upload that, that snapshot to S3, um, we, some, we could blow up our cluster. We could delete the whole thing. We could roll back our, or delete our entire CloudFormation stack. And the data and the cluster state are safe in S3 which means that now that snapshot of that data is, dur is durable. It was durable already on Weka, but if I, if I want to cross-region replicate that to another region, or if I want to have a process, I mean a business process or a development process around dev and test that involves taking snapshots of stuff and then bringing them up as clones, this is a great way to do that. So, um, so we'll, we'll first we'll configure um, the object store. So we'll select AWS S3. We'll pull up my credentials. Oh, my bucket name. What was my bucket name? Oh, uh, for this, we're gonna create a new bucket. That way we'll, we'll be 100% sure that everything is empty. Amazingly, HPC Demo 1 is available. We create the bucket. We'll verify the bucket exists. Here it is, HPC demo one. Okay. So we'll go back over to our. Um, to our uh, object store config, and we'll call this uh, US East S3. That's the bucket name. We'll specify the correct region, and then we will go grab our access key and our secret key, and we'll hit validate. And it says it's validated, so now we'll save it. So now that the object store has been configured, we can configure um, features that Weka has like tiering and saving snapshots to objects. So when we go into um, file systems, we have a default local file system and um, a, a default uh, a group um, that file systems live in. That's the, their construct. And if we go to one of our clients, we can see that the wireless connection here is flaky. What a surprise. We can see that this is a special WECAFS type of file system. And if we go to another client in the same place, you might ask the question, well, how do I know if those are the clients in the same place? We go down here to clients, and is this US East? Yeah, so 1897-178-22. Um, uh, one seventy-eight twenty-two or two twenty-two. So they both have the file system, and I'll go here, and you can see that um, there's nothing in there. Um, so I'm going to set up watch, and we'll do watch with a second of one, and we'll do ls minus l. Um, and I'll go over here to check out the uh, permissions. I can write to it. So immediately, uh, it shows up on the other side. So these are two separate systems. 
Um, they both have the special kernel driver, driver to mount the file system. Um, and so we know that this is a shared file system. Okay, so we go back over here to the uh, file system view. Um, I'm going to just shrink the capacity here so I can use some of the flash capacity for something else. Okay, so I'm gonna add a new group for tiered file systems and we'll call this tiered. And this is the object store that's configured and we'll keep um, our cache uh, set to a month or space oriented, um, and we will um, send new data that's written uh, to the cloud after, say, 10 minutes. Um, so, um, because it's client side rendering, you kind of have to do like 1 1000, 2 1000 on the network here anyway. And then uh, I'll add a file system. So, this will be called um, to upload. So now that I've created that file system, I'll just verify that it, um, that it exists. Here, they have their own CLI called WCLI, and I'll give it the um, file systems list view, and you can see here that there's two file systems. One is called default, the one that we touch that file on, and the other one is called to upload. So I'm gonna mount the to upload. Now I can see that to upload is mounted. I'm gonna go repeat that process with to upload. And I'm gonna create a, let's call it a 10 meg file. So now I have this file here and I should see it um, over here if I mount that file system because the second system doesn't have the, uh, the new one mounted. spell things properly. Hmm, that's weird. I don't know what's up with that. Am I on the right system? I feel like I'm on the right system. This is actually the beauty of live demos. Um, okay, so what I am going to do is verify that I can see the systems from this side. I can see the system from that side. Oh, okay. I have to assume that there was uh, some, until I did the list, that the, the cache didn't know about it. I don't necessarily consider that to be a bad thing. Um, so now I'll go into the to upload and I should already see the file there. I do. So I have this 10 meg file here. So the next thing I'm going to do is I'm going to take a snapshot. So there's a couple different ways to do um, uh, the whole snapshot process. Well, what we're going to do is we're going to take a normal snapshot, um, but then we're gonna, the second thing that we're going to do is we're going to actually upload it to, uh, to S3. Um, so if we do that, and I'll do my cheat sheet of commands here. So I'm going to create um, the uh, snapshot. The file system uh, is called to upload. Um, I'm going to say that the access point that I want to access it on um, is called uploaded snapshot. And the name of the snapshot that I'm going to, uh, the actual name that I'm going to give it is uploaded snapshot. Um, so the reason there's a, a differentiation between uploaded snapshot and the name um, is that in DevOps environments where you have some sort of CICD type process, it's very often the case that um, you might have some limitations in the name of a snapshot, but the uh, metadata about it. Um, uh, you want to include there. So the, the quote unquote name of the snapshot might be the access point, like a mount point, um, but the name might be much more descriptive. So we're gonna take this snapshot. Um, the, the data that was returned to me, the thing that is interesting to us is um, the stow status. So this has not been stowed uh, in, uh, in S3 yet, but it is present. 
And so now we're going to go back over to that other system just to verify that it's present with snapshots list. And we see that we have the uploaded snapshot. It is present there. So now we're going to upload it um, to, uh, to S3. Got to name the file system properly. Okay, so um, this next part is a, called a slug. And um, what's interesting about this is the way that they implemented snap to object is that this is an S3 path. And let me show you what I mean. Everybody see this um, hexadecimal bit at the front? It ends in FF0. We're going to go over to S3 and find that uh, bucket that we just created. And inside of it, wouldn't you know it, in FF0. So that's the ID of the cluster that was configured to talk to S3. And so there's D for data, and inside of there, there's all of these different layers of, of key, uh, key space management. Um, and so like this file here is small, 44 bytes, that's not big. But I didn't put very much data in there either, right? So every piece of data that I gave it, it um, broke it up into pieces that it likes to manage stuff in, distributed it across its parallel distributed system, uh, and then um, when I'm uploading the snapshot to S3, it's taking, basically scraping it off in that native format and putting it in S3. So in, it, in AWS, we often talk about um, smart bits versus dumb bits. That if you put bits into S3, you want them to be smart because if they're dumb, you can't use other services with them. You have that limitation here too. But the trade-off is luster with no durability, no persistence to S3, at best persistence to EBS, but with no way to statefully take a snapshot across all of the nodes, or something that gives you all of the features that you would typically get on like a NetApp filer um, with the performance that you expect out of Luster. So that trade-off in my mind is an easy one to make. So now that we've seen that um, these bits are there in, uh, in S3, um, we will go to our second cluster. So um, when I turned up the stack, I did two stacks. I did one in um, Oregon and I did one in Virginia. Um, so I have uh, two of these um, things here. So this is, uh, this is the east one where the file systems are, are configured, and here's the uh, west one where the file systems aren't configured. The other thing that isn't configured is the object store. So the object store not being configured is analogous to I've got a new cluster, I've got a new workload, or I had some sort of disaster recovery scenario where I'm going to be turning things up. Because the workflow operation here is I wrote data to my HPC cluster, I persisted it to S3, and now I want to restore it. So the first thing I have to go do is, again, reconfigure um, the object store for the US West one. Go back to my uh, cheat sheet. I'll be deleting that after this show. And then um, the, ob the um, object store is still in US East 1. You could use cross-region replication if you want to. Um, remember with cross-region replication, you have to turn on versioning on both sides, which means that you have to, um, when objects get deleted, uh, you have to make sure that things get expunged properly. Um, so it's important to make sure that you have lifecycle policies to clean up deleted objects. Otherwise, uh, it'll, look, it'll look funny. You'll see one thing on the console, you'll see another thing with AWS CLI tools, um, that kind of thing. Okay. So this is uh, tiered S3. We'll validate it. It validated properly. We'll click Save. So you might ask the question, why is this AWS guy talking about this software so much? Two reasons. One, never uh, in the history of POSIX compliance stuff has there ever been anything so simple and so easy to use. Did you know uh, that there's like 400 plus user-facing tunables in GPFS, and another 250 plus that engineering knows about that customers are not supposed to use. Like, that's madness. <laughs> that's crazy. Like, <laughs> under what circumstances are you supposed to, to really go and tune those things? Um, the second thing is, um, they did such a great job on the self-service portal, and users can actually turn things up on their own. It means you don't have to talk to a sales guy. It's great to come to reInvent and learn. It's not great to be forced to sit through sales conversations. 
Having been on the customer side, I can attest to that. Some conversations are great, some conversations not so good. Either way, you've got more important things to do. So um, very much in sort of the vein of AWS, being able to do self-provisioning, um, self-service is, is present here. Um, the second, uh, second, really the third, the third thing is um, uh, we don't have anything uh, natively that meets the HPC requirements around high performance with small file workloads uh, and, uh, and having something that's distributed. You can use EBS and you get pretty good performance on a per node basis. You can use EFS and you'll get pretty great performance for read workloads. You'll get great performance on read workloads if you have a lot of data. But if you have a small amount of data or if you have uh, primarily um, small file workloads or, again, if you have mixed small and large file workloads, we don't have anything natively that, um, that'll do the trick. Um, so it's important to not be, um, you know, uh, not have the blinders on too much um, around what, are, what we're natively able to offer. Um, so we, you know, it may change in the future, but uh, at least for now, there's nothing out there that really hits the sweet spot for most of the HPC workloads um, except this. So it's, it's, it's great that it's available. Um, and, and, you know, the, the fully POSIX compliant point is actually super important. Um, okay, so now this is the uh, U.S. West one. We know it's U.S. West because in the URL it says U.S. West. So thanks to ELB, I know where I am. Now I'm going to go back to my file systems, and you can see that I'm back where I started, where I've got um, all of my flash capacity is uh, deployed um, in my default. And that, that's perfectly fine for most people. Uh, I'm just going to edit that real quick and I'm gonna make it like 10 megabytes. So I have the rest of it um, here. So I have a tiered file system. I'm gonna add the group. Freudian slip there, tired. Okay, I'm gonna do the same thing where I wanna keep it for a month cached and I'm gonna get, um, get rid of it off the cache uh, after 10 minutes. So now I have this uh, tiered file system group and I can add a, um, a file system. So I'm gonna add a file system. And by the way, you don't have to do this via the GUI, you can do it via CLI. I've got my nice cheat sheet right here. Um, I've got, uh, I will actually do that because I don't have the cheat sheet for that. Add a file system and we'll call this um, downloaded uh, FS and we'll give it the rest of the capacity. So now we go back to our uh, terminal. So these systems that we were working on were the clients associated with the first cluster. And um, we'll verify that when we go to the clients associated with the second cluster, uh, that they see the second cluster, which as far as we know, only has this new empty file system and the default one, which is also empty. So I'll go over to our second tab here, see if our connections are still there. And how do we know that we're on the right ones? This one ends in 22658, this one ends in 171232. We'll go back over here and we'll click on clients. 22658, 171232. Sweet. So we look at what's mounted, just the default file system. Uh, we'll do a file systems list. We'll do a file systems list on both systems. So we see they showed us the same thing. Um, they both have the default and they have that empty file system um, called downloaded FS. Now that thing that was outputted before here, this is what we need. This is the specification for that snapshot. So we're gonna use that to restore. So here's my slug. This is gonna be super exciting. So we're saying download the file system from this S3 specification to this file system called downloaded FS. And the group name is actually tiered. And we'll give it like a 50 meg total capacity and we'll give it a SSD capacity of 50 meg as well. Hopefully the capacities that I put in before won't break it. If it does, we'll go fix it. Oh, it already exists. Let me delete it real quick. Cool. So now it's not there. Now it's not there, and we'll just download it. 
So now we're going to go back to the, um, the events list and the statistics. So here we go. So these statistics, just for the last hour, we're going to pull up more stats. By the way, there's so many statistics in this thing, it's ridiculous. You can metric anything. So specifically what we want is we want to look at objects. We want to look at object um, downloads. So we've just added this, and it's shown up on the graph. Two things you can infer from that. One, the data was being collected the whole time. And two, all of the normal things that you'd expect from modern software around graphing stuff nicely exist. This is not a graph that's being rendered on a server and presented to us. This is client-side rendering. That means that the data is in JSON format, and that means that you can process it if you want to via CloudWatch events. You can process it via Nagios, via uh, you name it, right? So um, uh, was the one? Ganglia is the classic one for like HPC clusters. So you can actually go, um, you can go and look at this data. Um, it's, got, it's on auto-refresh. Um, we can... Uh, um, we can even take the, we'll hide the, like the other operations. We'll just double click on this to see um, in more uh, granularity what's going on there. And you can see very, that at, what was it, 318, um, uh, it started, so downloading that stuff. Is that on the right one? Yeah, I'm on the right one. So now we'll go look at file systems list and see we have now the downloaded FS. We now need to mount the downloaded FS. And we know that the name of the file system is downloaded FS. So now it's mounted. We go there and we should see that 10 meg file. So we're in the second cluster in US West in Oregon. We've downloaded the entirety of the snapshot from S3, and it's been restored to our local cluster. Think about that for a second, what that would mean for you and your HPC workloads. When you deploy your clusters, or your, and maybe your application has checkpointing and maybe it doesn't, when you deploy your clusters, you're usually leaving them on if it's on-prem. And if it's in the cloud, you're, you're in a hurry to tear things down because it's expensive to leave stuff up. Imagine if you were using EC2 Spot and you put in a bid for all of your systems and you got that two-minute notification that said, hey, guys, you're going to lose your bid. Isn't that a great time to upload the snapshot that you want to take? Take a snapshot immediately and then upload it to S3. That's your checkpoint. Your app can checkpoint whatever the contents of the file system are. But for your purposes, you can take the snapshot of your entire HPC storage cluster upload it to S3, and come back to it when you're ready. If the spot price doesn't come down in the next hour, that's fine. You can come back when it comes down. If you have systems that you're going to turn off because you want to go on vacation and not leave them up, you can do that too. If you have a desire to spin up 10 more clusters because you have some you know, um, dev or test workload uh, that you want to be able to run things on. By the way, you don't have to just use this for HPC. Use it for anything. Um, you can do that too, and you can do it based on the same slug. Once it's in S3, an object is immutable, which means that that snapshot that you've taken until you delete it from S3 is going to contain everything that was in your cluster at that point in time. That level of integration doesn't exist in any other solution, uh, and so I'm super happy uh, to be able to present it to you. So, um, so now we'll go back with our remaining couple of minutes. Go back to PowerPoint. We have a couple things to talk about. So this is sort of a summary of the stuff that we talked about. Um, it'll come up in a second. All right, cool. Um, so uh, EBS performance is fine, but it doesn't scale uh, and, you know, uh, the way that distributed file systems scale. Um, EFS is fine, uh, but it doesn't handle uh, writes with low latency, and it doesn't give you full POSIX compliancy. No NFS platform will. Um, and um, the ability to... Um, use things like Luster exists. In fact, you can go to the AWS Marketplace and you can find a Luster on EBS quick start, basically. And you can start up that cluster and, and you'll see it, like, like it'll be there, it'll be the real thing. But how do you know that you've tuned it properly? How do you know that one of those 650 tunables isn't wrong? You want something that's gonna do the right thing without you having to tell it to do the right thing. Um, that's more important than ever in the cloud because in the cloud, not everything works right all the time. Systems get turned off. 
um, due to things like EC2 spot bidding going away. Um, EBS volumes fail. Like we have, we have you know, trillions of them. Um, in, in, you know, invariably, you're going to find that some, something that you've deployed um, you know, has failed and you weren't aware of it. So you want a system that's going to provide a level of durability beyond what you would traditionally deploy, uh, you know, like with a, um, uh, a traditional SAN or something like that. Um, and so Weka can actually do that for you. It's got its own durability mechanisms built in under the covers. Um, but with the snapshot to object, uh, you don't have to even worry about that. You can just take as many snapshots to object as you want, um, and uh, they'll, all, they'll all be there. Um, so for, um, for other things, if you're interested in, in getting started, um, don't forget start.weka.io, um, as well as uh, check out our competency program. Um, and we have some other programmatic elements, like we have quick starts um, that are CloudFormation template-based um, uh, ways for you to, to spin up third-party applications, um, and the AWS Marketplace as well. Thank you very much for attending. Um, if you have any questions, I'll be sticking around uh, a bit uh, afterwards um, before uh, uh, having to run to the Venetian for my next session. Thanks very much.